I was living out of a suitcase because my household was packed up to go be sent to or my next location. So I'm just kind of looking around at what I have. Ended up getting about three coat hangers out of the closet, a few books, and making this weird contraption that kind of balances my phone above the writing desk. And I've got the light on and I pull another lamp over on the edge of the desk. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 102. G'day. I conducted a number of interviews for pilot positions when I was heading up the flying school at my past job. To try and keep everything fair and repeatable, I had the same list of questions to take all the applicants through. There was the normal behavioural style interview questions you'd expect in any job. And then there were the aviation professional knowledge questions depending on the role we were hiring for. It surprised me, but those professional knowledge questions really split the field and made applicants stand out, you know, either for good or for bad. People are getting through flight school or have been out on the job flying for a little bit and are just paying off or ignoring the study that got them the license in the first place. The first question that would trip our people would be VFR alternate weather requirements. Some people would mix up some of the numbers from VMC criteria with those of alternate minimas. And then there was some confusion at times between alternate minimas where you are able to use helicopter VMC at the destination and times when you couldn't, for example, in, in controlled airspace. And I, I get it. I know interviews are, are pretty stressful and artificial. Normally, if you, you weren't sure of the answer or the number during pre-flight planning, you could just look it up if you had to. But that is a pretty fair question for a job interview. And you want to be able to nail it and similar airlock questions because it's going to elevate you above the pack if others aren't putting in the study to keep on top of the regs. Another one that surprised me was the ability or lack of it for pilot job applicants to be able to draw and label a basic rotor vector diagram on a blank sheet of paper or on a whiteboard. For some pilots, that looked like something they just hadn't done or or looked at in a while, and they couldn't do it or could only get parts of it out. Again, I think being able to draw a vector diagram is a a pretty low bar for commercial pilots to be able to spit out without too much thought for a job interview scenario. But again, asking people to do that really helped to to split the pack. And it's it's tough as as an interviewer. You've got to make a decision in sometimes less than 60 minutes with someone whether they can do the job and where they sit in comparison against other applicants. It can come down to just a, a few questions like those. So let's do a, a little bit of introspection here. If you're listening to this and the thought of walking up to a, a blank whiteboard and drawing a basic vector diagram, then using that to explain dissymmetry of lift, ground effect, and auto rotation, if that makes you sweat and feel a bit uncomfortable, then that's great. We've found a, an easy spot where you can put a bit of effort in and get yourself back up to a professional standard. 
it shouldn't matter if you are a commercial pilot or a private pilot. That pro- professional standard and pride is something that we should hold ourselves to and each other to. We owe it to our, our families and the people that trust us to, to fly them around. And if you have to do it in your next job interview and you pull it off flawlessly and confidently, send me a check in the mail. To turn you into a aerodynamics guru in the shortest amount of time, probably the, the best resource I can point you to is the YouTube channel Helicopter Lessons in 10 Minutes or Less. To chat about the history of the channel and what goes into making the videos, we've got the creator, Jacob, joining us today. Jacob is an Apache instructor and standards officer. After a bit of a hiatus out doing what Apache pilots do, Jacob is back online and has started releasing some new videos and several more topics in the queue. Jacob, thanks very much for having a chat. It's been a while. I think we first reached out ages ago, but you've had a, a lot of stuff on since. So uh, it's great to, to see you back. You've got a, a video that's gone up possibly by the time this goes to air about two weeks ago. And uh, the time mm-hmm. looking at the moment, it's about 70 comments or so welcoming you back to, to your videos. So it's, uh, yeah, it's good to have you back around. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, we're going to chat about a whole bunch of stuff, but most folks for helicopters, where did, where did it all start for you? I think it's just kind of been in the family, honestly. I, uh, I grew up and my dad was actually a, uh, a flight medic. So I remember going out as a kid and seeing him at like Air National Guard displays, you know, showing capabilities of helicopters. And back then that was the old Huey days. I remember watching, you know, the medevac helicopter, the Hueys coming up right over treetop level, hoisting down a litter, you know, as my dad as a medic, going down, picking up a patient for this, uh, you know, family display, watching them come out of the helicopter, pick up the patient, hoist back up into the helicopter, and then just go right back to, to skimming above the treetops. And I just thought that was just one of the coolest things growing up. And that really kind of planted the seed of that, uh, or in my mind, that helicopters uh, and flying helicopters was what I want to do growing up. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I saw the different types of helicopters, you know, between Marine and Air Force and Army and uh, really kind of honed in on the Apache. I figured that was going to be a, uh, one of the coolest airframes out there and ended up selecting that. And how did they structure the, the family days back then? Like, Did you get to go for a ride scene as a kid? Uh, not as a kid, no. I remember, uh, I mean, this was, you know, just an air guard. So it's kind of, you know, like a soldiers who do this part-time but can be activated to full-time but you know they'd have days where you could just go out with the families to kind of demonstrate the capabilities i don't remember going to them all the time but i just i remember that one sticks out in my head is is just kind of planting the seed of really seeing helicopters and what they could do just completely blew my mind just thought it was the coolest thing growing up seeing that especially you know it was seeing my dad getting hoisted out of it picking up somebody and getting hoisted back in my kids are very blase. They've, you know, grown up visiting the, the aircraft and the hangars and all that sort of stuff. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's just a normal job. <laughs> so they're, yeah, they're totally yeah. over it. But uh, Oh, yeah. My, mine like looking up and, uh, I mean, they can tell you it's a helicopter, but that's that's about it. And so out of school, did you have that as a plan? Um, so um, Yeah. So uh, uh, I, when I got older, I started talking to my dad, asking him, you know, what I, what I need to do to, uh, what did I need to be able to, do first before go in and fly and he's had to go talk to some of the buddies that he used to fly with and they all convinced me you know with a little bit of his nudging hey get your degree first so um, I got my college degree first and then I went straight to the recruiter's desk and uh, uh, I just told him hey I want to fly Apaches 
he immediately just kind of laughed in my face and handed me a practice ASVAB and said, here you go, kiddo, take this. So ended up doing well on the practice ASVAB, uh, which is the entrance, entrance exam for the military. Really just kind of lumps you into different, I guess, groups of where your scores are, what you're good at, what you're weak at. But from there, just kind of going through the testing and kind of pushing towards, you know, getting that packet. The recruiter really didn't know a whole lot about the process. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the internet looking it up. Hey, it says I need to do this. Hey, can you schedule me for this? Can you schedule me for this? You know, I need a flight physical. I need to take the, uh, this test. I need to go do this. And he's just like, okay. And kind of let me, uh, I guess, dictate the process or at least what I was coming across online as far as what needed to be done next and went through all the hurdles and took probably about seven to eight months from walking into a recruiter station until I was reporting into basic training. What did you do at college? What was your degree? I've got a uh, a bachelor's in business and a, a master's in business. All right, um, so kind you... of fell into the master's. wasn't planning on that one, but it was one of those too good of an opportunities to pass up situation. So I kind of hung around there and uh, got that knocked out and then went to go put in my packet. Cool. Okay. Because it wasn't sure if that was going to lead in, whether you'd done you know, engineering or aero range or something like that at, uh, at college. Uh, no, surprisingly, I... Uh, I thought about the engineering course, but really, and I, I asked my dad a lot. I get a lot of respect for my dad and everything that he's done in his life. But I was telling him, hey, I, I really just want to fly helicopters, but, you know, I need a degree or I got to get a degree. What I thought in the process, I later found out you don't necessarily need a degree to do it. But, you know, he's just saying, hey, you can't go wrong with a business degree. It'll get you well-rounded. You'll have a little bit of everything. And if you decide the Army is not for you, you can get out and get a job anywhere. So. It's just like, okay, that sounds, you know, that sounds good. Go ahead and get the business degree and then get that under my belt and move forward. And in flight training, did you always know you're going to go to Apache or did you have to wait till you get the end of the course to get a, a, a type selection? So how it works is it's a, an order of merit list. So it's, uh, you're competing with everybody else in your class, uh, which flight school starts every two weeks and you're kind of lumped in that batch of people. And you go through the flight school process, which is just a series of schools, I guess, flowing consecutively, tested along the way. And then you get to an aircraft selection where basically they come in the room and they say, all right, this is the needs of the Army. We have, you know, this many Blackhawk, this many Apache, this many Kiowa, this many Chinook. Number one in the class, go take your pick. He takes his pick. Number two, you go take your pick. And they're basically they're marking them off the board. So whatever's left over at the bottom of the class, that's what you're stuck with. So if you want to get the aircraft that you want, you score highly in the class. So people were kind of, some people knew what they wanted. Some people didn't know what they wanted. Uh, I, from the start, you know, just like, I want this air, I want Apaches from the, from the start. Everybody knew it. You know, you had a few diehards and then you had a few that were kind of leaning one toward or towards one airframe. And then a few that just kind of, they're just happy with whatever they got. With, and I think it was Jason Mills, ages back, he essentially turned up at his unit and they were in Iraq at the time and, and did a lot of his training, like in, in theater. Is it? Mm-hmm kind of structured that way you get sent to a unit and do your training on type then or do you do your type training on an apache first before you get to a, a unit how's it structure on the apache training so when i went through everybody flew the th-67 which is the bell jet ranger everybody flew that until aircraft selection so everybody you know went to the basic takeoffs landings instruments stuff like that everybody started with that th-67 got to the aircraft selection phase from there, they selected their aircraft, and then they moved on and started progressing in that aircraft while still in flight school. So, you know, you got to the Blackhawk, the Chinook, the Apache. But then from from there, then you get your orders to your first duty station. 
and then at the duty station, that was kind of like the on the job. You know, you've learned how to drive the car in a parking lot. Now we're going to show you how we drive it here at the unit type uh, mindset. So it's it, it goes from like, you know, the very, very, very basics of flight school to now you show up to the unit and you're still like you're qualified to fly. But, you know, you're still with an instructor for those first few months. I can't remember. It's the, the back seat in the Apaches is the pilot. Either, either crew member can fly and either crew member can operate the west weapon systems. However, the front seat is more tailored towards weapon systems. It's more accurate. The back seat is better suited for flying. It's, it's better rigged for flying. But it's meant to be operated independently in either, either crew station. So the aircraft captain could be in the front of the back. Like it just that, right. that doesn't go with the, the pilot or the gunnery role. That's just independent of that. That's correct. And uh, depending on what I'm instructing at the time, I, I may be in either seat, depending on what I need to instruct or evaluate the other crew member doing. Okay. Um, I could be evaluating on weapon systems, and so I'll want them in the front seat. Or purely on piloting capability, I may put them in the back seat. But yeah, either seat you can do flying or weaponry. And with that, within that community, do people specialize in one or the other? Or you purposely, like everyone just cross-trains on everything? Or do you have um, people who specialize a little bit? So uh, unlike the other airframes, I guess uh, a lot of the, you know, Blackhawk, Chinook, and really a lot of helicopters that are, are not gunship-based, everybody pretty much has the same job. Well, in the Apache, it's a different job in the front seat than it is the back seat. The front seat is, once again, very, very sights and weapons oriented. It's meant to look out, find, and engage, whereas the back seat is purely meant to fly, navigate, and, you know, communicate. So it's two purely different jobs, but we do train on both so that you can put pilots in either seat to be able to operate, depending on, you know, what the mission is. I'm just thinking of the, the checks we used to have to do, like, you know, every three months would be like a unaided night, you know, an MVG, IF, you know, all the different sort of sequences you would do. <laughs> I'm just imagining the, the training program for you guys. It must just be back-to-back -back checks all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty busy, um, I guess, without going into too many specifics um in the army all aviators have to do an annual exam that pretty much covers all the bases you have to do all the tasks and you're evaluated on academic knowledge as well so that can get pretty uh can get pretty busy for sure okay let's jump to your youtube channel okay so for folks aren't aware it's obviously uh, helicopter lessons in 10 minutes and just looking at the timestamps and the videos it looks like you put your first one up maybe just over about three years ago were you already an instructor at that point, or you, this was something you're doing to kind of help study? How, what was the original sort of setup to do it? So, so up to that point, I was, I guess, when I created the first video, I was going through the instructor pilot course, learning to to become an instructor and an evaluator. Kind of up to that point, you start out your unit as just a a, a line company pilot, where you really you're not a pilot in command. You have to fly with another pilot in command, somebody who's kind of gone through those regular roles and trials and tribulations, whatever, to, to become a pilot in command. So first unit showed up as a uh, just a baseline pilot, kind of worked up to a pilot in command. And then I was moving to my next uh, duty station while taking the instructor pilot course en route. So that first, I want to say four to five videos or so, I was going through the instructor pilot course. And I made them as basically uh, almost like study slides. I had, going, before I went to the instructor pilot course, I had this huge three-inch binder of, um, like what I was telling you about, everything that you have to have on your annual exam. Well, I just started building this three-inch binder of everything that could possibly be asked of me. And 
over the course of doing that, you know, going over topics like ETL, well, I can, you know, do a one page on explaining effective translational lift or transverse flow or all the aerodynamics, all the regulations, all the weaponry, all the aeromedical factors, everything. Um, I've just been building this big three inch binder. So I just figured, you know, so many people, I guess that I'd gone or I guess been with in units, you know, asking questions and clarification questions. I was just like, you know what, I can just make videos of this stuff. You know, enough people ask, you know, it could at least float around maybe the military community and kind of answer some of those questions. Not to mention it's something that something I could build that stays longer than I, you know, possibly would in the army. It could help out, you know, future generations of pilots. So I just started going over videos over really the stuff that I'd been working on the last few years and just kind of kept to myself in this little three inch binder. On an instructor course, normally you do, like anything, you do everything the hard way first. So you're using a whiteboard or a chalkboard or whatever it is to, to draw these up. When people are going through training or if you're giving lessons now, obviously you've got these videos to, to send people to, but in, in the current system there in the US Army, is it you're still delivering aerodynamics lessons on whiteboards or you know delivering them PowerPoint? How's it actually happening in the training system? What, what uh, so the Army loves loves PowerPoint, but uh, I think the average soldier absolutely hates it and we try to stay away from it. So a lot of the stuff, if I've, if I've got you know, a new batch of aviators that just showed up to the unit, you know, I'll just say, hey, we're going to go fly and we're going to do some basic takeoffs and landings today. But before you show up, I want you to talk to about or talk about some basic aerodynamics. You know, I want you to explain ETL. I want you to explain transverse flow. I want you to explain dissymmetry of lift. And then before we fly, I want each one of you guys to just teach a quick class, make sure you have an understanding, and then we'll go and fly it. And for aerodynamics, that's, you know, maybe 5% of the job. Maybe the first few classes we'll talk aerodynamics, then we'll talk uh, airspace and regulations. We'll talk about train flight techniques. We'll talk about night vision characteristics. We'll talk about, you know, all the different subject areas that, you know, is required to teach and evaluate. But yeah, uh, preferably just a one page or, you know, talk to me about it at the aircraft or on a whiteboard. Just show me that you have comprehension of these subjects before we get in the aircraft. Because once you get in the aircraft as a new student, really, you're, you're just hanging on. If you don't understand it, you're just, you know, you're, you're thinking about the next maneuver. You're thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with the flight controls? What am I going to do when I turn base to final and all this kind of stuff? And then if you ask somebody a question in flight, if their brains, you know, that little hamster is already running a million miles an hour, they're not going to be able to answer a question in flight. But at the table before we go fly, like, do they have an understanding of this before we fly? That's really what I'm trying to get at. I think, especially the Aerodai, yeah, if you're on a whiteboard, you can launch from one aspect into the next because you obviously start with, you know, vector diagramming, you end up, you know, transferring how that then works in autos or um, you know, ground effect. So it's one of those things where you just move from one topic and, and it's like a, a never-ending chain where you just keep chaining it up with the, the next thing that happens. And Right. Yeah, and I must admit that when I was teaching like straight aerodynamics course, so sometimes, honestly, I'd, I'd pull out one of your videos because it's like, okay, I can sit here and draw this up or here's this really good video that someone's done and you can get the whole concept in eight minutes. And your writing is going to be a lot neater than what I can put on the whiteboard. <laughs> so that's where I came across it. And essentially, yeah, like all our guys going through for, for especially for Aerodyne, that was a, just a fantastic resource um, for us. And so, you know, there's one flight school in Australia leaning on, on some of your stuff. What sort of commentary have you had back? Like who do you hear from and how far, you know, what's the weirdest sort of places you've found your videos being watched and, and the feedback you've got? YouTube analytics shows a lot of uh, information on it, but I want to say it's somewhere in the ballpark of 50 to 60 countries that the 
the videos go out to predominantly the US, UK, Australia, I want to say India, and then some parts of Asia are kind of like the big five that it gets. But I'd say the lion's share of the views come from the United States. And uh, a lot of people really just asking about, you know, the whole process of becoming an Army aviator, which is why I put out that video of becoming an Army aviator that just kind of outlines the process. And then people started asking about, well, how do you get in? How do you pass the SIF test? So then I, you know, put in those videos. But I get a lot of people asking, really, how to join the Army, how to be a pilot. And then I think I get a, a fair share of people who are, you know, in flight school who are like, hey, man, this got me through primary. This got me through, you know, the basics. This, you know, this took the dry writings of all the manuals and it put it into like a, a usable form that made sense instead of just reading textbook of, you know, this concept or this concept. Like, uh, I guess breaking it down to Barney style is what some people have said, yeah. you know, like elementary style. And you see these, you know, professional YouTubers out there with pretty fancy kind of studio setups. How'd you, how'd you rig up your camera? Because, you know, like it's, it's they clean, simple videos. But how'd you structure it? How'd you sort of get the video there and all the, the camera in the right place? And what are you using? Are you using a smartphone? How'd you set it up? So it was pretty funny. When I was in the uh, instructor pilot course, when I first started those videos, um, I was actually sitting at the... Uh, the Holiday Inn on post at Fort Rucker, Alabama, where flight school, you know, does everything aviation. Everybody knows that's where aviation is. But I'm sitting there in the hotel, kind of get this idea that I want to record videos and just decide to go for it. Didn't really have a mount, didn't have anything. I was living out of a suitcase because my household was packed up to go uh, be sent to my next, or my next uh, location. So I'm just kind of looking around at what I have. Ended up getting about three coat hangers out of the closet, um, a few books, and making this weird contraption that kind of balances my phone above the writing desk. And I've got the light on, and I pull another lamp over on the edge of the desk. And from just a, a very basic setup, uh, just start filming from my phone. So that, that first video is, is very, very rough. And just like everybody else who starts YouTube, their first, like, first few videos are just... Uh, they're going to be rough, but you know, it is what it is, but, uh, recorded that kind of figured out how to crop and edit and make video flow, you know, from frame to frame to frame, add some music, check the audio until we're now living in my house. Now I've got, you know, a, uh, a phone mount. I'm still using an iPhone. I've used an iPhone to record every video up to this point, but I'll record it on my iPhone using a mount and a few different lightings or lights around it. Um, usually airdrop it over to my iPad, do all the editing on the Splice app or iMovie, depending on, you know, what I'm feeling that day, and then just straight into YouTube. So it's, uh, I'd probably say the channel itself has cost less than maybe 150 or $200 to put up, mainly because I, I, you know, the only thing I've really gotten for it is just a stand for, to hold my phone and then a little bit of lights. I'm picturing, like, if I had to do this, I would have the desk and then out of, out of picture on the floor would be all the crumpled up pieces of paper or stuff. <laughs> so how do you prep for it? Do you, you know, you have a whiteboard and you sort of plan out how it's going to look at the end and then reverse engineer it? What's your, what's your process for sitting down and actually ending up with a, when you get a blank piece of paper and the pen in your hand? Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I take a lot of, of uh, viewer feedback. I get a, a lot of people asking for videos. 
and I just keep a running log, just a notebook of all the things that people are talking about. So like I've got three videos in the works right now, just from viewer feedback that, uh, They'll come up with an idea. I'll research it, uh, cross-reference it against a bunch of manuals because I, I like to check Army manuals, Navy manuals, civilian manuals, and really just kind of anything else on the Internet that you know may be out there that may have some sort of validity. Kind of go trekking through all the woods, see what's important, see what's not, kind of grab all the things that are important, bring it back into my notebook, and just kind of organize my thoughts. And uh, So I'll have a spiral binder, and I'll just kind of write all my thoughts out in a way that flows, kind of roughly draw a diagram of what I want it to uh, to be. And if if I do some dry runs on it and it's more than 10 minutes, I know I got to go and cut back some of it. So I'll go and cut down because I really want to preserve the conciseness of less than 10 minutes. Because, you know, if you get too long-winded on a lot of these, these subjects, people just start to lose interest. You really lose sight of, you know, what's important, what's not important. So I'll just sit there and do a few dry runs, some some notes in my notebooks, a few different sketches to see kind of what works out. And I want to work up to, uh, I guess, pushing out more videos. But currently it takes me anywhere from six to 10 hours to make a 10 minute video yeah. from, you know, maybe an hour to two hours of research, an hour of just prepping, drawing, organizing notes, the actual filming. It sometimes takes one or two takes, but just about all my videos are single, single, just straight through. I try to just draw it without having a whole lot of cropping and clips spliced together or anything like that i'll try to go straight through but then from there you know the video editing adding uh some sort of like promo in the beginning adding music uploading it and then all the descriptions i try to put copious amounts of notes because a lot of people if they have questions they'll just go straight down into the notes and they can see for the most part a lot of my stuff has an a uh, a text below the video that kind of goes into the details that they missed it from the clip itself um I had a, I had a note here to <laughs> to give you a poke about you're doing the the wonderful army um, introduction motivational part where you've got you know a couple of seconds of uh, Apache video flying or sorry Apache mm-hmm. flying around as the uh, the normal typical template for uh, for army training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, uh, I, there's no shortage of uh, I guess cool photos and uh, videos and just really scenery that I come across. It's just like if you drew. Uh, I don't know, drove just, uh, you know, an awesome car and some awesome scenery all the time. Like you would just naturally collect that type of footage. So I, I try to put just, you know, a, a teaser at the beginning just kind of shows, you know, if it, sometimes it applies to the video. Sometimes it's just something cool to look at. But, you know, something that makes it not just dry uh, pen and paper, but some sort of application video. Have you found that when you go for your own instructor renewals, do you get uh... They, they go a bit easier and for the aerodynamic side? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> uh, at, at this point now, I'm a, uh, so I guess some of the qualifications, I, I you know, went through the instructor pilot course. Uh, I went to the instrument examiner course, which is like the military equivalent of a, a CFWI. Went through a few other courses and then got to the, uh, uh, I got signed off as a standardization pilot so now i have the ability to train and evaluate other instructors so now a lot of my evals are my ability to develop another instructor so i will evaluate them training somebody else from scratch or evaluating somebody else so 
you know, the, the shortfalls of them as an instructor. And then usually I'll take them out on a flight and I'll just play stupid and I'll just say, Hey, roll reversal. I'm a 200 hour pilot and we're going to go fly and do this. And then, you know, I'll just start messing up stuff or forgetting stuff um, to see, you know, do they spot check? Do they, do they see what is missed? What is wrong? Um, things like that. But on my evals, and now as a standardization pilot, it's one of those like where it's this big circle of somebody wants to see me evaluate an instructor evaluating a student. And how do I give feedback to that instructor? And it's really another standardization pilot. It's just kind of like the quality control on me. Now, how do you do that in Apache with two seats? So are they playing the, the instructor who's a student? Like it sounds like pretty complicated depending how many hats you're wearing at the same time. Or do right, you, are you right. actually so, flying with an instructor that you are evaluating and they're watching or they're, they're assessing some other way? Uh, right. So it, it's, uh, uh, I guess what I was saying earlier about the annual evaluation. So say there's an evaluation um, that comes up, you know, it'll be just a room with the, say, the, the pilot to be evaluated, the instructor, me as the standardization pilot. So, you know, three people if I'm evaluating somebody or if I'm getting evaluated and maybe another person evaluating me in the process. And each person in that room is getting evaluated to some extent on different levels and for different, I guess, capabilities. But then when it comes time to the flight portion, me as a standardization pilot with another standardization pilot, we're going to go out there and we're going to go and he won't, you know, he's going to say like, okay, how do you, how do you teach a a new instructor how to teach these maneuvers? Let's say you have a new instructor who, you know, he's right out of the schoolhouse. He's, you know, a brand new Army instructor pilot. How are you going to go show him to demonstrate these maneuvers to new pilots in this area? And so it's kind of, uh, I guess, one of those dynamics or what instructors love to do is just roll reversal. You know, at any point he could say, hey, roll reversal. I am a 150-hour aviator. I'm a 400-hour aviator. You know, I've been struggling with this. I want to work on this because I'm always struggling on this. And he just wants to see my ability to, you know, perform as either instructor pilot or standardization pilot or so on and so forth. They could switch hats, but I guess the further up the pecking order you go, the more you can kind of get picked on for, you know, what you got to know and what you got to be able to instruct and evaluate. So what you're saying is for the 150 hour pilot out there, that the, the study and the, uh, the preparation just never stops. It's discontinuous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lifelong uh, learning experience, that's for sure, because uh, at each level, you're expected to know more and more. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's never ending. Always got to be in the books. All right, let's use that as a segue then. So you've basically come up with a book where you converted some of those uh, slides into a book. How'd that process work? Uh, again, I can see it on, and I'll link to it on, on iTunes there, but it doesn't go into what's inside the book. But uh, yeah, what was the process there? And, and when you open up the book, what are you looking at? Is it separate, like is it different to the YouTube videos or are they incorporated? How's that work? Slightly different, but incorporated, I guess, is the short answer. So um, I've got a lot of people who they're really looking for just, you know, a quick something that I can flip through on their phone, maybe study, refresh before an exam that just cuts it down. And basically, I just I took those first 20, I think it was like 24, 25 videos, something like that. And I put it just on a one-page, pretty much power slot or PowerPoint or uh, PDF. Just a cleaned-up graphics, cleaned-up definition. Just a one-page. This is everything you need to know if you need to, you know, if you get asked about it. And to uh, 
uh, a PDF book. It's on uh, iBooks and Kobo, so depending on what software, you know, desktop, Apple software, whatever. But it, it was meant to be just an even shorter version of what the, those first few videos were. So if you're sitting around there, you're about to have a check ride or something like that, you could sit there on your phone and flip through all these review. All right, I got that. Flip to the next slide. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Flip to the next slide. And then now that I'm building more and more videos, I'll probably put a, a second book out there eventually that captures, you know, the second set. But it's just more of a, a condensed uh, study guide of those videos. Okay, and I guess the process of creating these videos, the feedback you get, and then flying with pilots across a whole range, if you had to pick like three, and I guess we're, we're focusing on AeroDie rather than going too far out of knowledge of components, but is there, in the general pilot population, is there a couple of spots where you're finding, you know, that generally we're, we're pretty weak on those areas and that basic aerodyne? Um, I'd say a lot of pilots uh, right out of flight school they know how to fly the helicopter roundabouts. Uh, it's like a driving school where you know how to drive, say, in a parking lot. And then you get into the real world, and you're going to encounter circumstances that are not quite like the parking lot that you learned to drive in initially. And there's going to be a, a little bit of a gap in knowledge that you have to bridge because you may or may not know the reference or be able to recall the reference when you learned. I guess how that uh, uh, flows in example is... Coming out of flight school, people may know, you know, dissymmetry of lift, and they're, you know, they they know, okay, the advancing side creates more than the retreating side. Okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. You know, you'll you'll get questions like they can regurgitate what the book says, but they don't necessarily have an application. But then you take them out to the traffic pattern. You say, you know, hey, as I'm taking off, you'll notice this, 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 and this. You know, I'm doing this with the flight controls. Like that's what you're seeing when you're seeing this aerodynamic concept. You know, when I'm thinking translating tendency or transverse flow, like this is how it manifests in the helicopter. If I go out here and I'm flying at treetop level and say this happens, what do you think just happened? The nose just went to the right and it, you know, didn't seem to stop on its own. Oh, that might have been lost tail road effectiveness. You know, you studied it, but, you know, here's a real world application, you know, bridging that knowledge. So what I'm seeing with people out of flight school is they have that that rote memory or just the regurgitation of they know what the textbook says but they don't necessarily know what that looks like in uh, the aircraft. Sometimes even when it happens, they don't know. Uh, I've had multiple pilots, especially loss of tail rotor effectiveness, they experience it and they have no idea why. They just know that aircraft's turning and it's not stopping. And it's not until afterwards we get to the table, we talk about it. Hey, what are the factors that go into that? You know, what, you know, what kind of flight profile were you in? Where were the winds? You know, what, how much power are you pulling? Yeah, it's tricky because you think of the normal training program it's it's pretty packed tight as it is, and often you just don't have the the context to to join some of the things together. So it's probably just a a part of that learning process, whatever field it is. Transfer, you know, I guess I in all the instructor stuff, um, it, it transfers from you know the knowledge to to understanding. So yeah, I'm not sure how to tackle that one. It's just I guess part of the learning process. Yeah, I mean, I I really don't know other than. Uh... Just like what you said, it's it's very condensed as far as the pilot training. I'm, Army is no different than the civilian world. It's all like how much can you get per flight hour. And really until you start bridging the gaps between the book knowledge and the aircraft, uh, you know, it's it's just going to be there and, uh, until that understanding is you know developed. 
we cast a little bit of a wider net there, Jacob. Is there, a, again, a couple of top things looking back? You know, what were the things you'd, you'd love to have learnt when you were 200 hours or 400 hours that are, are things you kind of just started to develop that understanding for now? That's a tough one because you don't ever really know what you don't know until you don't know it uh, or until you realize you don't know it. Um, I, I'd say really just having a, a, a thorough understanding of what those aerodynamic principles before you get into it. I've, I've been in a few aircraft. Sometimes I was the pilot on the control. Sometimes I wasn't. But, you know, there's been over torques or there's been striking a tree or little things that happen, uh, failures of equipment in flight that you, you have the, the base understanding, but you really don't ever think about what happens if that were to ever happen to you. I guess for me, looking back, I would try to, to analyze why are, you know, emergency procedures the way they are? Why are they written the way they are? Because if you understand the systems, if they were to fail you, you understand why the emergency procedure is the way it is. Or when you have aerodynamic phenomena or whatever that happen, and you understand the recovery, if you understand why the recovery is the way it is, you know, kind of builds that that base of knowledge. So kind of getting into those situations before, uh, or I guess understanding those a little bit better is something I wish I would have spent a little bit more time on. Um, I think I just, you know, as a new pilot, everybody just thinks it's cool and you're, you know, you're drinking from a fire hose just trying to take everything in, but you're not necessarily digesting, understanding why things are the way they are. But then you find yourself in a, or find yourself in a, you know, situation that could be scary or life-threatening. And you get through it based on muscle memory. Hopefully everything goes well. Um, and you get back and you're like, oh, man, that's why the emergency procedure says this. Like, okay, I understand now because that just now directly happened to me. I, you know, I'm never going to let myself get in that situation again. I'm going to understand this this a little bit more. You know, thankfully I got out of that one unscathed. I, don't I know guess it's, it's a bit more, yeah, I was going to say, it's a bit more context there too, <laughs> given the nature of operations and what Apaches are doing. Uh, rather than someone who's listening who's, who's flying tours. It's a completely different situation hitting a, a tree uh, in a normal sort of civilian flight regime. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the longer you fly, the more you're going to have instances that they just happen. I've had quite a bit of mechanical failures of different systems, uh, you know, night vision failures. I've had some of the systems on the Apache I can't really get into, but I've had all kinds of failures in those systems. You know, I've had a street a tree strike before, you know, been shot at, uh, things like that. You just, you better understand what's going on. So when stuff fails, you know how to react and you know how to react the proper way. Cause you know, based on the parameter you're in airspeed, altitude, hostility situation, you may or may not be able to react in time or do the right action. Like that, that could mean life or death in the helicopter. Absolutely. What's you said that the last lot of years you got up um, is a SIFT. So what does that stand for again? Uh, so that's the Selection Instrument for Flight Testing. It's the uh, the new standard for what the Army tests for to become an aviator. So entering into the Army, you has the or have the ASVAB. It's just it's a battery of tests. It's really generic. It sees what you're good at, what you're bad at. But if you want to go aviation, in addition to that test, you're going to have to pass the SIFT test which is what those those videos go over, just kind of an outline of all the modules of the test. Okay, and then without giving too much away, what's the, the next one or two videos you've got in the, in the works there? Uh, let's see, I've got a uh, one on mushing, which uh, is really an Army term. I don't think I've found it much in 
Not other naughty. manuals, but <laughs> naughty what it is. So mushing is uh, it's a temporary stall condition that happens in a dive recovery, an aggressive dive recovery, which not a whole lot of civilian helicopters that I know of can experience too many profiles where they're in extreme dive and have to recover rapidly. You know, depending on what you're doing, some crop dusters could find themselves in you know dive recoveries depending on what kind of maneuvers they're going, spraying fields, and whatnot. But it's something that's a temporary stall condition after recovering from a dive that basically the aircraft doesn't want to recover. It wants to continue towards the earth. Um, so I'll kind of outline why that happens and how to avoid it. And if you experience it, how to get out of it so that you don't just have a controlled flight into the ground because there's nothing mechanically wrong with the helicopter. It's just an, an aerodynamic situation that you have to understand if you're doing a lot of diving. Um, also have a video that goes over confined area landings. So if you know either military or civilian whatever you're doing, you know, there's all kinds of situations where you have to land field that may be just big enough for the helicopter. So I'll outline some of the ways that both the military acronyms, some of the things that they use, as well as some of the FAA acronyms, what they use for clearing themselves into uh, landing zones and some general techniques and what to look for. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think I've subscribed to the channel, so I'll, uh, I'll see those when they, they come out. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Jacob, that's awesome, mate. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, and as I said, it's always interesting if people are watching the videos online to, to hear a bit about the, the background, uh, what happens behind it. And if you are, yeah, you know, leave a comment on uh, Jacob's videos there, uh, especially if you're after particular topics that he hasn't covered already. Um, I see that you're taking you know, feedback on, on and that sort of interest of what people want to see. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I kind of live and, and breathe off of you know, what do people want to see? I, I add that to the notebook and I just start, once I get enough notes and kind of, if people are hitting the same topics over and over, I'm just like, all right, these people, they really want to see this. And so I'll start pushing, you know, to get a video out. So yeah, and I, I get some pretty wild stuff that I've, that I've never even heard of. And I have to go to some obscure manual to even find some sort of reference for it. So, you know, if, if it applies to the masses, I try to put those videos out for, first and then I'll chase the little intricate things you know as i go okay so youtube channel it's helicopter lessons in 10 minutes or less what's the easiest way to get to the book um so all the uh all the videos they should have a link to the book in the description if you just open up the description below and then uh in the about section of uh youtube it's got the an email address so if you have any issues you can go to that email address or you know questions you can go to there I'm usually best about responding through YouTube. I'm a little bit slow on the, the email, so if you really need to get a hold of me, just leave a comment on one of the videos. But yeah, if you have any issues with any of your books, just check that link and its email address is just 10minutehelicopter at gmail.com. Yeah, thanks. I found I'm super useful just for, you know, for my own refresher and, and you know, making sure I've got a concept down. And as I said, when I was instructing, we definitely, you know, use them for students here too in, in Australia. So uh, that they get around and uh, yeah. Thanks for, for your hard work. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been great. All the normal stuff here at the end that you'd expect. Links to Jacob's channel and book are on the blog post for this episode at rotaryringshow.com for you to click through on. A big g'day too. If you are watching or listening to this on YouTube, on Jacob's channel itself, if this is your first introduction to the podcast and you want to find out more, then first up, make sure you've hit the subscribe button here on Jacob's channel and then do a search on iTunes or on Google for the Rotary Wing Show. You can find a bunch more interviews there 
And I'd love to hear more of your own stories and where you're listening from. Thank you to the support team behind the show that helped me bring these episodes to you. These are the listeners just like you that come from all these different backgrounds and, and chip in a few dollars per episode. That just offsets the cost for hosting the website each month, feeds the audio to iTunes, and for the download bandwidth cost from Amazon to, to stream the audio. So thank you to the Patreon supporters. We've got Max, Jim, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Alidar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, Rendell. Gang, keep up the study, keep pushing yourself to get better, and it's all training and preparation now in advance, so that one day if you need to pull it out to save the aircraft and, and save the day, you've got that capability and knowledge to fall back on. It can make all the difference.